When I was a student at the University of Michigan in the engineering school, they had a requirement that engineering students had to take a couple of classes in the humanities. I think this was to try to ensure that uh, engineers did not turn out so completely like engineers. <clears throat> but to give you a sense of how little value the engineering school placed on those classes, we were allowed to take them at that time pass-fail, which means that you didn't get a grade for the class. You either passed, or if it was really, really bad, then you failed. And so a friend and I were looking for a class that we could take in the humanities, and someone told us that art history was an easy class. So, great, I signed up for art history. I had no appreciation for art or for art history. Went to the first day of class, and if I remember right, art history met Monday, Wednesday, Friday at 11 a.m. in a big auditorium, Angel Hall. Uh, it was a little bit like this, maybe not quite as big. And I remember comfortable uh, seats in the auditorium, and so I came in on the first day of class, settled into my seat. Professor went over the syllabus. I don't know that I paid super close attention. Uh, but then he turned out the lights and started showing paintings on the screen. Well, here I am, an exhausted college student in an auditorium with the lights out. Well, I promptly fell asleep, slept through the entire class, woke up when it was over and thought to myself, I can sleep just as well in my dorm as I can here, and proceeded not to attend class again except for the midterm and the final. So it was a class I foolishly, hear this correctly, foolishly only attended three times. Now, have you ever had that dream or that nightmare where you're in a class and you haven't been attending the class and you're getting near the end of the class and you're not sure you're going to pass the class? That was my reality in art history because even though I was taking it pass-fail, at some point it dawned on me, I think I might actually fail this class. But of course, I would just rationalize, yeah, but I'll, I'll catch up near the end. Well, at some point I realized, you know what? There's not just a midterm and a final. There's also a paper. We have to write a paper. And the assignment apparently was you were supposed to go to the Michigan Museum of Art and choose a piece of art and write a paper on it. And I thought, oh, Lord, have mercy. I don't know anything about art. So like for the midterm and the final, you could kind of memorize paintings and dates and artists and sort of cram for it. But as time went on, I'm like, all right, I got to find a way to write this paper. So I go walking through the Museum of Art at the University of Michigan, and really, it is in complete ignorance. I'm like, I have no idea what's going on. But I do at some point come across this painting. It's by a man whose name I would be much better at pronouncing if I had attended the class, I think it's Guernercio, something like that. And it's called Esther before Ahasuerus. Now, I don't know anything about the artist. I didn't know anything about painting. But I did know something about this story. And so I looked at that painting, and something didn't strike me as quite right with it. And so I went back to the Bible, and I read the story that you heard uh, Sahara and Hezekiah read part of today. And I was like, I knew it. There's no fainting in the story. Esther doesn't faint. That's not in the Bible. And I did know from my one meeting with my TA that she was a woman who was very passionate about women being treated fairly and properly. 
And I thought, well, here a male painter is misrepresenting a female's strength and courage by having her faint in the painting. So I wrote an entire paper about what an injustice this was. I don't think I said anything about the artist, and I don't, certainly I didn't say anything about painting. She loved it and gave me an A. <laughs> that was mercy from God. That was not justice at all. <laughs> On the strength of the Bible story, that A, I think, counterbalanced some very poor grades on the midterm and the final, and I passed the class. But now, this week, 25-some years later, I get to put that painting up on this screen, and the usefulness of having... Think if I'd gone every class period, how great this would be. <laughs> We'd have paintings every week. This is the only painting I know from that class. I get to put this painting up here because what I want to show you today from God's Word is number one, why this is such a misrepresentation of Esther. We want to look at the person of Esther in the story of Esther, and I hope to be able to show you she doesn't faint uh, when she comes in to see King Xerxes or King Ahasuerus. But I'd also like to show you that perhaps this painting is actually pointing the way to a deeper truth that I'm not sure the artist had in mind, that I'm not sure we might have in mind when we see it, but a deeper truth that when you look carefully at the story of Esther, we might see that this painting helps us to see something we might have missed. So what I'd like you to do is take a Bible and turn, if you will, to the book of Esther. The book of Esther, if you need a Bible, uh, there's one that looks like this in the rack in front of you. If you take one of those Bibles, it's page 397. Page 397, that's Esther chapter 2. And what we're going to do is in Esther chapter 2, I would like to look at the life of Esther, and I would like to compare that with Esther's life in Esther 5. Now, I've been very specific in how I have labeled those. Esther chapter 2 is the life of Esther, and Esther chapter 5 is Esther's life. And I've labeled those slightly differently, and I hope you'll see why as we go through this passage. But in Esther chapter 2, I want to take a look at the life of Esther. And what I'd like you to do, probably if you're not using one of the church's Bibles, if you have your own Bible, I'd love for you to underline some things in your Bible. You can either do that physically with a pencil, you can do that mentally in your own mind, or maybe on your notes. But as we go through some verses... I'm going to highlight a couple of verbs in each of the verses, and I'd like you to pay special attention to those verbs as we go through them. So we begin in verse 6, which is actually about Mordecai, but it's also true about Esther. And we're told that he had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Among those, and here's the word I'd like you to underline and pay special attention to, among those taken, taken captive with Jehoiachin, king of Judah. So the first thing we know about Esther is that she's in captivity. She's been taken captive. She's growing up and living in Persia, which is not her homeland. Verse 7, 
Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had, and here's the verb I'd like you to pay attention to or underline, Mordecai had taken, same word, taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. Esther was an orphan, and Mordecai takes her into his family. He adopts her. Verse number eight. When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, that's the order that they're supposed to go throughout the kingdom at the beauty contest where they're going to look for a replacement for King Vashti. When that order and edict had been proclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther also was, and here's another verb to underline and pay attention to, Esther also was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had charge of the harem. Now, at some point in this verse, we get the idea that perhaps some of the women in the kingdom here, the king is looking for a new queen, and they volunteer. Yeah, I'd like to, I'd like to join that beauty pageant, the bachelor, the bachelorette. Like, hey, look, I'm ready for this. They were brought. We get a slightly different sense with Esther. She didn't volunteer for this. We don't have any sense she wants to do this. She is taken, seemingly by force, to participate in this beauty contest and is put into the king's harem, which is not a happy place to be. So the verb is taken. Verse 9, she pleased him, that's Haggai, the guy who's in charge of the beauty contest, and won his favor. Immediately he provided her with her beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her, that's another verb I'd like you to pay attention, assigned to her seven female attendants selected from the king's palace and, next verb, moved her and her attendants into the best place in the harem. Verse 10, Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai, next verb, had forbidden, forbidden her to do so. Esther, who is Jewish and grown up with Jewish traditions and Jewish customs, is not allowed to be Jewish at this point. She's taken into the king's harem, and she is forbidden by Mordecai of revealing her Jewishness. She can't live as a Jew. She can't identify as a Jew. She can't act as a Jew. She's separated from her nationality and her religion. Jump down to verse 16. The intervening verses explain the beauty contest to us. She was, next verb, taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the 10th month. Verse 17. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head, and last verb, made her queen instead of Vashti. So Esther becomes queen. The thing that I want you to notice in all those verbs that you underlined or paid attention to, they're passive verbs, meaning the action is happening to Esther. 
that's why I've entitled this The Life of Esther, is that all the things that are going on in her life seem to be outside of her control. She's taken into captivity. She's taken into Mordecai's family. She's taken into this beauty contest. She's taken or forbidden from revealing her identity. She is moved and placed and given certain assistance by Haggai. She's taken by the king into the palace. She's made into the queen. Everything that's happening in her life in chapter 2 is happening to her. Life seems to be outside of her control. Now you might think, Well, she gets to be queen, like works out good in the end. That's not the way I read chapter 2. This month is the 20th anniversary of the death of Princess Diana of England. If you're familiar with her or her story, that's more of what I think of when I think of Esther chapter 2. A woman who was forced into a marriage she didn't ask for and then held in captivity to expectations that went with that marriage. There are some good things that happen to Esther. She is adopted. And yes, she's in the harem. At least she gets to be the queen in the harem. But all in all, the things that are going on to Esther are the kinds of things that rob you of your identity. She's taken into captivity. This is not her homeland. She is an orphan. Yes, she's adopted, but she's lost her mom and her dad. She's taken into a beauty contest in which she's going to be evaluated and valued only on outward appearance. Horrific to God. That somehow her value only comes from how she looks. She is forbidden from revealing her true identity as a Jewish person cut off from her people, from her customs, from her religious practices. In chapter 2, we are meant to see this is a difficult place to be. Things that you would think form your identity. Family, nationality, country, what you, what you value or how you're valued to other people. These are all taken from her. And what we see in Esther chapter 2 is the life of Esther, a life that's simply happening to her. I wonder how many of us might feel that way about our lives that other people are making decisions. Spouses or parents or educators or employers or the country in which we live or whatever, and it feels like our life is simply happening to us and it's other people's sinful choices or immature choices or the way they're viewing us or interacting with us and our life simply feels like it's the result of the choices that others have made. That's where Esther's at in Esther chapter 2. Now I'd like to contrast that with what we see in Esther chapter 5. So turn over to Esther chapter 5. And having looked at the life of Esther in Esther 2, we want now to see Esther's life in chapter 5. And actually we're going to begin in the last verse of of chapter 4, verse 17. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. Does that sound a little different? Esther's now giving orders, and Mordecai's obeying them. Chapter 5, verse 1. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes, put, 
to pay attention to that verb, and stood, also notice that verb, in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. Those are active verbs. She's not waiting for the king to summon her. She's taking the initiative and places herself in the throne room in the king's vision because she has something she wants to request from him. Verse 2, when he saw, and then notice this, Queen Esther. Now, Esther's been queen for three chapters. This is the first time she's actually identified as Queen Esther. And it's almost as if the narrator is trying to prompt us to recognize that before Esther was a woman who happened to be queen, now she is actually Queen Esther. It goes on. She approaches him, the king. She touches the tip of his scepter. And the king says, what do you want? And Esther says, I want you to come to a banquet. Okay, the king comes to the banquet. He brings Haman with him. He says, tell me what you want. She says, I want you to come to another banquet. And then I'll tell you. Esther's in charge of when she's going to answer the question. He's still the king. But Esther's the one deciding when the question gets answered, and she wants everything to be just right before she reveals what it is she's going to ask of Xerxes. She's in charge. Without the authority, she's making it happen. Well, what happens at that second banquet? She reveals to Xerxes that there is a plot to kill all the Jewish people, including herself as a Jew, which she reveals to him. Actually, I want you to see the language. Turn over to Esther chapter 7. It's powerful language. Esther chapter 7, verse 6. Xerxes says, who in the world would ever dare to do such a thing? At the banquet, which is her, Xerxes, and Haman, that she set up now two straight banquets in a row just like this. The time is right. Esther stands up, in my mind, points at him and says, an adversary, an enemy, this vile Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. The king got up in a rage, left his wine, and went out into the palace garden. But Haman, realizing that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. Is that not telling? Who does Haman think has the power to give him life or death. Not the king. It's Esther. Here is this woman who he's looking at. She's the one that has the power to rescue me or to condemn me. And it goes on. Esther ends up inheriting Haman's estate. Esther ends up asking Xerxes to reverse the order to not kill all the Jewish people. When it doesn't get, a, when there's, it takes more time to execute all of that, Esther is the one who goes back to Xerxes and says, We need another day. From chapter 5 on, we have a very different picture of Esther. That's why this is a misrepresentation of who she is. By the time she goes in to ask King Xerxes, She's not a fainting woman. There is a strength there. She might be afraid. But there is a strength there. There is a power there. There is an authority there. By the time we get to chapter 5, we have a very different picture of Esther. And the question is, what happened? 
What brought about this change? Because if you and I feel like our lives are out of control and everybody else is making decisions for us and we feel like we have no authority or no power or no control, the question is, how do we get from that place in Esther 2 to the place in Esther chapter 5 where there is great power and authority and resolve flowing through us? Well, the change happens at a very specific moment. And I want to look at that moment together. Turn over to Esther chapter 4. This is the turning point. This is the transformation from the life of Esther to Esther's life. This is the transformation from a woman who was queen to Queen Esther. It happens beginning in verse 14. Mordecai is trying to convince Esther to take action. Why has she been reluctant to take action to this point? Her whole life has been lived with other people deciding her life for her. She's been taken and forbidden and taken and assigned and made and set and placed. All these things, her whole life she's been trained that she simply responds to the actions of others. Now Mordecai wants her to do something for herself. Surprise, surprise, she's reluctant and unable to do it. And so Mordecai essentially asks her a question. He says, for if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And here's what essentially is the all-important question that he asks. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. That is the all-important question. That is the question that starts Esther on the journey from her life being out of her control to her life being ordered and filled with power and authority. And what essentially Mordecai is asking Esther is this. It's the same question we want to ask ourselves. Where is God in all of this? Yes, Esther, you can look at your life that you're in captivity because other people made choices. You can look at your life that you're an orphan because of what happened to other people and that you were adopted because of those choices. You were in this beauty pageant because of things that were outside of your control. You were forced to renounce your nationality and your religion because of things were outside of your control. But the question is, where was God in all of this? Perhaps... While other people were making choices, God was the one working behind the scenes to get her to precisely where she was at that moment. One way to view Esther's life, the way it's viewed in chapter 2, is her life is subject to the winds and decisions of the people around her. Mordecai says, perhaps there's another way to view your life. Maybe you are where you are because God has been at work to place you right where you are for just such a time as this. Amen. That, my friends, is the all-important question.
When you look at your life and you say, how is it that I lost this loved one? How is it that these other people are sinning against me and causing my life to be so difficult? When you say, I didn't ask for this financial stress. When you say, I didn't ask for this health situation. And it feels like your life has gotten to the point where all the other things around you are deciding your life. The all-important question is, but what if all these things have happened by the divine design of God. That doesn't mean he approves of the beauty contest that happens in Esther. It doesn't mean that he approves of captivity. It doesn't mean that he approves of the things that have gone on in your life. But what if in and through and despite all that stuff, God has been at work to get you to where you are today, right now? That's the all-important question. Now we need to see the all-important response. The one right answer to that question. Verse 15. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And here's the answer. The all-important answer. And if I perish, I perish. Esther has started to think, yes, perhaps God has placed me in this position. But that doesn't eliminate the fact <laughs> that she's scared because if she goes to the king, she's going to die. But her response is, if God has placed me in this position, then I'm not in this place by accident. And I'm going to do what is the right thing to do. I'm going to do what it is that God wants me to do. And if I die as a result of obeying God, I'm willing to die. That's where I want you to come back and take another look at this painting. If you see this painting as describing what happened at the moment that Esther makes the request, it's a misrepresentation. She doesn't faint. But if you're willing to see, instead of Esther fainting, imagine that this is actually a painting of her dead. The idea is, is that when she goes to the king and the king extends the scepter, she's actually being raised from the dead because in her own mind, she's already decided. If obeying God means my death, I'm willing to die. And just like Abraham when he obeyed God, and it was like Isaac died even though he hadn't, what if Esther actually died, metaphorically, when she made that decision. In fact, look back at verse 11 in chapter 4. It's really powerful language. Esther is trying in her last gasp breath to explain to Mordecai why she can't do what she thinks she needs to do. She's scared to death, and this is her reason. All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know, like I'm not making this stuff up, everybody knows this, that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law. They must be put to death. Everybody knows this. 
if you make the decision to go visit the king without being asked, it is a death sentence. And when she decides to go visit the king without being asked, she's executed the death sentence. She's actually died. But look at the next phrase. Unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and, and the NIV rightly translates this verb, spares their lives. But it's very fascinating. This word in Hebrew is used in 1 Kings 17 and in 2 Kings 13, not for sparing life, but for resurrecting life. This is a Hebrew word used in the Old Testament when someone is raised from the dead. And what I think is actually happening is this painting, and I'm not sure the painter meant to do it, this painting, you can view this in such a way that when she made the decision to go do this, she died. And when the king accepted this, she's actually being raised back to life. Now, of course, when you hear about death and resurrection... It's not ultimately Esther that we think about, right? As Christians, who do we think about? All the more so when you realize that when she makes the decision and dies, there is an intervening period before when she goes before the king, during which time people are fasting. How long is that period? Three days. She dies And for three days they fast, which is a sign of death. And on the third day, the king extends the scepter to her, and she's raised back to life. We are meant to see Esther pointing us to Jesus. Esther's, if I perish, I perish. That's Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane also facing his own death. And Jesus could have sat in the Garden of Gethsemane and said, I didn't make the choice Adam made. It's all these other people's sins. It's all the stuff that everybody else has done wrong. That's what's gotten me to this point in the Garden. But Jesus says, I am here not by accident or by coincidence or by random events. I am in this place because God the Father has chosen me to be here. And Jesus says in response to the Father, not my will but yours be done. That's what if I perish, I perish means. Esther is realizing my hands are in, my life is in God's hands and whatever he chooses to do with it, I will accept That's what gives her control. That's what gives her power. She is being conformed to Jesus' death, and his resurrection power is working through her. See, one of the real tragedies of all the harm that happened to Esther and all the harm that happens to us, when our identity is stolen, when we experience captivity, when we're forbidden from being the person that we were made to be, when we're put into a beauty contest where we're only valued for how much money we have or how beautiful we look or how smart we are. One of the real problems is is when our life feels like it's outside of our control, when everybody else is making decisions and we have to live with those decisions, the horrific irony is we try to fix that by trying to take control. We don't want to be, we don't want things outside our control. So we fight for more control. But the irony is that's the absolute worst thing to do. 
the example of Jesus, to take control of your life is to cede that control to God. This is why the example of Esther, which points us to the example of Jesus, also points us to the words of Jesus where he repeatedly tells us to follow in his footsteps like he does in Mark chapter 8, verses 34 and 35. Jesus says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life, whoever wants to be in control of their life, whoever wants their life to turn out in accordance with their dreams and their plans and their visions, whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. John chapter 12, Jesus says the same thing in slightly different language. Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. The tragedy of Princess Diana's life was that so many choices were made that she had no control over, but instead of turning to God, she tried to reassert control over her own life, and it doesn't work. Esther gives a very different example. Things in her life were just as much outside of her control, but at that moment, Mordecai says, stop and think where God might be in all of this. And Esther says, I think God's asking me to die. And if he is, so be it. That's what transforms her life. That's what gives her power. What you see in chapter 5 going forward, where Esther is giving orders to Mordecai, where Esther is controlling what happens with the king, where Esther is rescuing the Jews, it's because Jesus' resurrection power is flowing through her. Listen, there's a reason why this book is called Esther and not Mordecai. Mordecai's a great example. He's an obedient person. But the person in this book who actually faces death, dies, and is raised from the death, metaphorically speaking, so that God's will can be done fully in her life is Esther. That's why it gets named after her. This is the example. And if you feel like your life is out of control, please, the solution is not to try to take control. It won't work. The solution is to give control to God and to say, I wouldn't have chosen this. I wouldn't choose to be an orphan. I wouldn't choose to be in captivity. I wouldn't choose to be in this horrific beauty pageant. I wouldn't choose to be in a king's harem. I wouldn't choose to have to hide my identity. But if for such a time as this, Lord, you've put me in this place at this season, I'm ready to obey. That is power. That makes all the difference in the world. That one decision moves Esther from where she is in chapter 2, a life spinning out of control, to where she is in chapter 5, the heroine of the story. Now, what do we do with this teaching today? Well, you heard Jordan's testimony about going off to college. There are many here who are going off to college. Some are coming here to go to college. Many students are heading back to school, college, school. That's one of those places where life can feel out of control. It can feel like teachers and professors are imposing things that you may not necessarily agree with. 
It can feel like friends are trying to get you to do something. It can feel like parents are being oppressive or passing decisions that seem harmful to you. You can experience being cut from a soccer team or uh, having difficulty in the school play or all sorts of things where life can feel out of control. Here's the very best piece of advice I can give to you. If you want your life to come back under control, please don't try to take control. Simply going in and arguing with the coach that he shouldn't have cut you. Simply going in and trying to fight for a place in the musical when you weren't given one. Simply trying to change your friends or overwhelm your parents or do whatever it is that you think will cause your life to turn out the way that you want it to go. That's a trap from Satan. It won't work. But if you choose to realize that perhaps you were cut from that team or aren't in that musical or are struggling in that class or were assigned that teacher with those classmates you don't really want to be in or are allowed to be in a family where parents are passing rules that you don't agree with, if you're willing to ask the question, what if God put me here for just such a time as this and no matter if it costs me friends or peace or happiness, or whatever it may be, I'm here to obey, that will change everything. And if you go into this school year trying to control your own life, it's your friends, your teachers, your parents, your church, everybody else will control it. And life will feel outside your hands. But if you take your life and you give it to God, and you say, even if I die, I die. Even if I'm unpopular, I'm unpopular. Even if I hate my high school years, I hate my high school years. Even if this college that I go to doesn't work out to be perfect, then it doesn't work out to be perfect. I'm here to obey God. That will make all the difference in the world. Likewise, if you're here and you're single, it may feel like if you're single that life is outside your control. Everybody's making decisions for you. Family members, friends, everybody wants to get you married or wants you to do this or tells you to do that. It can feel like life is outside of your control. I'm here to tell you if you try to take control, if you say, I'm going to get myself married, I'm going to make myself my life matter in a certain way or this, it's going to go badly. But if you recognize that God has placed you in this position for just such a time as this, that there are things in your singleness that God can use and wants to use for great good, Please hear me right. Nobody's saying that it's not a struggle. Nobody's saying that, whoo, Esther's life, this is fantastic. Everybody wants this. In the middle of it, she says, God placed me here in the midst of this suffering. And when she does that, God's power begins to flow into her life. Her circumstances don't immediately change. But God is present. Likewise, in this country in which we live, it's easy to pick up the news and think things are really outside of our control. Things are happening in, this, in the government, in the country, in the world in which we live that feel like they are spinning out of control. It's easy to look at what's been going on, the events in Virginia last weekend that are continuing to have ramifications, things that are going on, and feel like life is out of control. The worst thing that Christians in America can do is try to assert control to try to step in and try to fix everything, to say we want this country to work a certain way. What we are being called to do is exactly what Jesus did. 
and say, perhaps God has placed us as Christians in this country for just such a time as this. Perhaps there's something we're being asked to do, to learn, to show people what it looks like to love an enemy, to show someone what it's like not to be racist, to choose to, not, to, choose to avoid intolerance and incivility and hatred, to turn the other cheek, to give them the example of what Jesus did. Perhaps we have been placed in this country for just such a time as this. And as long as you and I try to use our own means, whether through politics or money or whatever it may mean, to try to fix everything and bring it under control to what we want it to be, it's not going to work. But if like Jesus, we say, God has placed me here, not my will, but yours be done. And if we ask ourselves the question, not, why couldn't we have lived 60 years ago? If we ask ourselves the question, why did God place you and I in this country at this time for just such a season. God hates racism. God hates intolerance. God hates anger. God hates all the fighting that's going on, the arguing. It doesn't matter which side you're on. God hates all of that stuff. He needs somebody, some people who are willing to say, whatever the cost, we're going to do what God called us to do and that we're not here by accident and if we had just done this decision or made that decision or if other people had done those things, I believe we're here for just such a time as this. And I believe if we're trying to save our lives, we're going to lose them. And if we're willing to hand them over to God, then Jesus' resurrection power can work in and through us to bless not only us, but the whole country and the whole world. Jesus is very clear. Look, no servant is above their master. If they treated me this way, they're going to treat you this way. And when Jesus was asked by God the Father, through no fault of his own, to die on a cross so that salvation might come, he has every right to ask you and I, come, pick up your cross, and follow me. If you want to save your life, you're going to lose it. I'm just telling you that right now. But if you're willing to hand your life to God, watch and see the kind of life he gives you back.